Mm, let's see. I don't know if that's black smoke or dust blowing off some of the coal piles out here. I'm driving around Pueblo with Jamie Valdez. We met him back in episode one. Jamie works for Mothers Out Front, an environmental justice group. Pueblo is Jamie's hometown and has a reputation for being an industrial town. It is commonly called Steel City, from when steel production defined the town's economy and identity. And what has helped produce the energy for that steel is the coal-fired power plant. And it looks like none of these are running today, which wouldn't be surprising to me because along with calling it the state's largest emitter of CO2, the Public Utilities Commission named this XL's least reliable plant. It's always shut down for some problem. We're looking at the state's largest coal-fired power plant, Comanche. I think they're actually all still in operation, but Plant one should be retired later this year. And then plant two in 2025, and plant three, which is the largest of the three, in 2031. Is plant three the one on the far right here that looks a little bit newer? It is newer, and it's the largest of the three. According to the Public Utilities Commission, plant three is the largest emitter of CO2 in Colorado. And according to the EPA's toxic release inventory, it's the largest emitter of air toxics in Pueblo, responsible for up to 84% of our toxic air contaminants. The newest unit, Unit 3 at the facility, came online in 2010 and originally was supposed to operate until 2070. But because of the state's efforts to decarbonize, coal-fired power plants are where some of the biggest gains can be made. So now, the closing date has been moved up to January 1st, 2031. And as part of the agreement, Excel committed to continuing to pay taxes to Pueblo County through 2040 and pursue a just transition for the workers. One of the concerns we've had from the rail workers about the early retirement of Excel's Comanche plant is that the coal trains are really their lifeblood in a lot of ways for their jobs to continue. But more and more, we're seeing the trains carrying uh, turbine parts. And so I think that can be one of the uh, ways that we can keep that rail industry going. Shutting down emitters isn't always simple for a town that depends on those industries for jobs and the tax base. Manufacturing has been on the decline in Pueblo for a number of years, and today accounts for about 6% of the jobs. Other sectors have been growing, such as hospitals, services, government, and energy. Some call this the fourth industrial revolution, which is centered around advanced technology, connectivity, and automation. And when it comes to the energy sector, Pueblo wants a front row seat. In 2017, the city set a goal to be powered by 100% renewable energy by 2035. It's important to note that the city's electric utility provider is not Excel, although they do sell natural gas to local residents. The electricity Excel generates in Pueblo goes to other parts of the state and powers their largest customer, 
the Everest Steel Mill. There's more solar array out here. A massive field of solar panels across from Excel's coal-fired power plant stretches out before us. It's huge. It's a, just a sea of solar panels, it looks like. And then, you know, you see a little prairie and then another sea of solar panels. Uh, and then you've got the high power lines running on both sides of the road. What you see off to the distance here on the left is the GCC Rio Grande cement plant, which is another one of Pueblo's major emitters of air toxics. So as we get up the road here a little ways, we'll see some more solar arrays and you're starting to be able to see the big tower at CS Wind and we'll be able to see the, their plant and all the uh, wind turbine parts. Jamie and others believe that Pueblo represents the change happening to many industrial towns as they reinvent their community and economy. Pueblo specifically, I think, has a great opportunity and is poised really to be a leader nationally in renewable energy. We've got more than 300 days of sunshine and plenty of wind whipping around the plains and foothills around here. And I really think that we could take that role as a leader in the nation. We already have some of the largest solar arrays in the nation here in Pueblo. We also have CSU Pueblo just a year or two ago announced that they are the state's first net zero university powered by 100% renewable energy. In 2022, our first municipal net zero building was opened. It's a community health center over on the east side, and it's fully powered by solar and geothermal. The heating and cooling is geothermal. I really feel like we've got a lot of great things going on here in Pueblo that are pointing to a better future powered by renewable energy. The energy transition can have the co-benefits of helping with both climate change and local air pollution. Pueblo seems to be an example where there can be some win-wins by helping with pollution while supplying jobs and a new economy to the region. And much of this is being driven by a community that is engaged in what they want for their future. In this episode, we'll get an up-close look at that change happening in Pueblo and the community members who have rallied to protect their air. This is Clearing the Air, the hazy future of our skies, an eight-part series about the state of air in Colorado and how we are navigating this complex problem that knows no borders. My name is Kristen Uhlenbrock, and from the Institute for Science and Policy, welcome to season three of our podcast, Laws of Notion. I've been in Pueblo since I was five years old, and it's been a great community to be involved in. We're very passionate about being a big city but still have that small town feel where people know each other and connect with each other very much care for each other our identity is transitioning as well to some respects but our roots are always going to be manufacturing this is ashley valdez she's the area manager for community and local government affairs here in southern colorado for excel energy we had the steel mill and we are great at manufacturing here we've got a lot of 
wonderful things about Pueblo that makes us uniquely situated to take advantage of the energy future. We have the sunshine, and yes, other places in Colorado have that as well, but we really have an abundance of it. We have an abundance of land, and we have a lot of really bright leaders that want to look at that future and embrace it. Over her career, she's been deeply involved in the changes happening in energy and what that means for her hometown of Pueblo. What I have seen over the last 27 years in my time is we are living in that energy future right now and it's transformational in a lot of different ways. How we power our cars, how we can power a steel mill, for example, And there's just a lot of great innovation that's going on, and it's rapidly changing. Just an amazing fast clip, and it's a great time to be part of utilities and to be able to know that we're charting that path for the next hundred years. To Ashley, the evolving energy transition offers opportunities for the Pueblo community and local economy. We have a great opportunity with industry and manufacturing, such as CS Winds, formerly Vestas all of the towers for wind projects. A lot of those were made here. There would be other energy companies that would come in because of that, or there could be in the future. Who are the suppliers for all these big energy projects? Who are the suppliers that can help, say, Avestas or anyone else in that energy industry? It gives Pueblo a really unique opportunity to still engage in manufacturing and then do it in a way that is helpful for the environment and that we can be very proud of. With Colorado's climate goals, Excel is aiming to reduce carbon emissions by 80% by 2030 from 2005 levels, meaning they need to transition away from fossil fuel generation as soon as possible. In 2017, we were looking to file our Colorado Energy Plan And we were looking at it and knowing that it was going to mean closing Comanche 1 and Comanche 2 a little bit early. Those two plants were slated to close in the 30s at the end of life. And we needed to come to the community and propose that we would close it, both of those, about 10 years earlier. And we wanted to do it in a very thoughtful way. So we started meeting with leaders early on before anything was ever filed just to get their feedback and say, okay, how is this negatively going to impact you? What can we do to mitigate those impacts? What do we need to be looking at? And how can we have that conversation? And the biggest thing on people's minds when we talked about that was, what is that gonna do for Everaz? What happens to Everaz? Everaz is a Russian-owned company that acquired the prominent steel mill in 2007. The mill was founded in 1881, and at the time was the only one west of the Mississippi. Currently, the mill provides over 1,000 local jobs. But steel manufacturing has fallen dramatically in the U.S. since the 1950s. As of 2022, China is the dominant provider of steel, providing more than 50% of the global supply. Many see keeping manufacturers, like Everaz, in the U.S. as a way to secure supply chains, adhere to U.S. regulations, and offer well-paying jobs. And while we still use and will need a ton of steel in our society, the manufacturing of it is considered one of the harder to decarbonize because of the sheer amount of energy it requires 
and the emissions from production. So when Excel, the sole energy provider to the mill, scheduled to shut down the coal-fired power plants, a big part of the conversation was what would happen to Everaz. Because Everaz was considering leaving over concerns about electricity rates becoming too expensive. Everaz is our only electric customer in Pueblo. The rest of the community, we only serve natural gas here. So it was really important, and I brought that forward to our leadership and said, we really have to look at how can we keep Everaz in Pueblo. It's really important to the community. And as we transition, we have to be very aware of that. So we worked holistically to see that whole picture for Pueblo. What does it mean for the tax revenue? What does it mean for jobs? Because our employees, we have outstanding employees, and we want to make sure that they're cared for in, in that transition and what that looks like. And we were able to all roll up our sleeves, and not only to say, here's the information, because you can give information, but we wanted that dialogue, that back and forth, and that was really important to us. Over the past few years, state officials and others have been incentivizing Everaz to stay and keep jobs in Pueblo. And then in 2021, Excel and their partner, LightSource BP, brought online the Bighorn Solar Project, one of the largest arrays in the state. Its purpose? Provide Excel's biggest commercial customer with a clean source of energy. This made the Everaz Steel Mill the largest solar-powered steel facility in the world. The expansion of clean energy in Pueblo and the state is booming. In early 2023, Excel and its partners cut the ribbon on another large solar array project in Pueblo County called Thunderwolf. This is also a pilot for iron-air battery technology, which doesn't use precious metals like lithium and can store electricity for up to 100 hours. Excel is also building a major transmission project called the Colorado Power Pathway. Pueblo is one of the major parts of the backbone for the high voltage transmission that will run through the Eastern Plains of Colorado, bringing opportunity for greater solar and wind onto the electric grid for the Front Range. And in September, Excel filed a plan with the Colorado Public Utilities Commission to double the amount of renewables and improve its transmission infrastructure by 2030 across the state. But to get projects like these built, Excel needs to engage with a diversity of stakeholders. Ashley and her team are in the midst of a community dialogue process for Comanche 3 about how to manage the scheduled closing on the horizon. For our company, we have a responsibility to our customers to be affordable, and to be reliable. And those are the two guardrails that we work through everything that we do. We'll be doing focus groups with your environmental groups, your health groups, elected officials, for example, educators. We want to tap into the young people, so the high school groups and the the kids that are in college, and see what's important to them. So there's a lot of different groups that we're going to meet with that are not necessarily part of this main committee, but we are going to include that feedback with the community as a whole, and that's really important to us as we move forward. I think it's fair to say that there's not going to be any one 
technology out at the plant that is going to replace Comanche. It is a very large plant. Over 700 megawatts of energy are produced there, and you can't get that with, say, just a solar farm or these different technologies. They will all bring in, and they will all help build that puzzle, but it won't be any one particular thing. Responsibly shifting Excel's operations in Pueblo means there might be openings for new energy business ventures. And there is a big focus to ensure communities are supported through the transition. We live here. We're just as concerned. We're not some big company that lives elsewhere that's not concerned at all about the community and about the environment here. It's very important to us. For years, I've watched people say, oh, yeah, I'm from Pueblo, and they've got their head down. And this transition is allowing people to look up and be proud of what we can accomplish here and what we do here. And I think we work really hard. I think we're able to overcome differences through conversations and have those open dialogues to see what would be best for the community. If you haven't listened to previous seasons of our podcast, Laws of Notion, I encourage you to check out season one, Coal at Sunset where we dig even deeper into the complexity of the energy transition. On the outskirts of downtown Pueblo, Michael Ogletree and a group of staff from the state's Air Pollution Control Division arrive at a local community venue called the Ethos. Rainbow streamers are still hanging from the Pride event, and the walls are lined with artwork. They're meeting with members from Mothers Out Front, including Jamie Valdez, Velma Campbell, and Jane Frazier. Right, welcome. Um, tell all your friends about this amazing place in Pueblo. Yeah, thanks for having us. I know there's a lot of us here. For me, kind of showing that we are taking this seriously and really want to partner with Pueblo on the one air quality and, and the work that your team has already started. Um, this is Michael. He and his team are here because Mothers Out Front received a $50,000 grant from the Windward Fund to start a community air monitoring project called Clean Air Pueblo. I'm Jamie Valdez. I'm the... Um, Colorado senior organizer for Mothers Out Front. We're an environmental justice organization working toward the goal of a uh, livable climate for all children. I also, I, I'm a Pueblo native. I grew up here and have family, multi-generational roots in the Southern Colorado area. I grew up dealing with asthma and um, my grandfather and uncle and some other family members of had problems with cardiovascular disease and passed away at young ages because of it. And I now have uh, kids and grandkids growing up here in this community and I want to see that cycle broken. For a long time, I've known that we have some of the state's largest emitters of toxic air pollutants here at Pueblo. Um, I know that according to the CDPHE, we have higher rates of asthma, COPD, and cardiovascular disease compared to state averages. And so what I want out of this partnership, there's quite a few things I can name, but I, what I really want is just to know what's in the air we're breathing. 
Pueblo is an example of one of the communities that the division is helping to strategically place air monitors in a network that will create the most use of the data being collected. And it gives community members the chance to voice their concerns and shape future programs and policies. What would be helpful to support your group in selecting sites? Do you guys want to throw some out and get our response or do you want us to provide you some recommendations based on our review? I mean, we're happy to do it either way. We want you guys to, to be the decision makers in a lot of how this is implemented. Our entire municipality is about 12 miles across. Part of the reason we're an environmental justice community is because we have the industry and highways and residential areas as well as schools and parks, et cetera, in such close proximity to each other. I mean, you can stand down on I Clark and Pueblo and see the industrial sites. So almost anywhere you go in town is going to be upwind or downwind of somebody's industrial site, and it's going to have a highway going through it within a five-mile radius. Michael and his team want to serve as a resource to the community that helps them get the most out of this partnership and the grant. Questions about where to place sensors or what the data can be used for are all necessary conversations. And historically, community members have not been included in this process. So we've been aware that using something like purple air monitors opens us up to, you know, that data is worthless. And frankly, a lot of our project really is about building community awareness and community will. And we know that we can use the data, we hope, to certainly detect patterns, but not for regulatory filings. What we're doing with purple air, we recognize that right from the start. That's why it's so great that you're going to bring in another networking that, you know, has more. Yeah. And, and I would just say, I mean, I talk about this stuff at a national level, but the data is never worthless. Yeah. <laughs> There's always value to the data. It's just trying to identify how you use that data that aligns with the data keyway that's been down and how we can use that information to better inform the work that we do. It's not worthless data. There's a quote from Nate Silver a rather well-known statistician and founder of 538, an opinion-polling website now owned by ABC News. He says that numbers have no way of speaking for themselves. We speak for them. We imbue them with meaning. I find this an interesting concept and that we can all likely agree that better data collection and standardization are vital that we need to look for signals among the noise. And yet, we must be mindful of how we translate that data into meaning. You want data to paint the full picture with as little bias as possible, while also being useful. Here's Michael. It's important to think about what you want to do with the data and what you want to do with the project at the beginning so that you have a better understanding and expectation, both as the entities collecting the data, but as us as regulatory agencies providing them like, here are the things we can and can't do with the data. And here's the types of instruments and the type of data you should be collecting so that we can use that in a way that's in alignment with your end goal. With limited resources, data for data collection sake isn't a great use of money. That's why strategic decisions are important. And Michael wants to draw the line 
from community air monitoring to the impact it can have further down the decision-making road. Having that information allows community members to have a better understanding of what's going on in their communities and be able to then advocate or come provide comment to different kinds of rules and the impacts that they're seeing in that data in their communities. The other piece of it, I think, is more opportunities for researchers to take that information and do research so they could help provide some additional guidance into how we can make rules and regulation changes. Michael also sees how better data can lead to more creative thinking and perhaps behavior change. I think we could use data in in very dynamic ways if we can de-silo data sets. So imagine your car that's telling you to reduce idling, right? But what if that was connected to something like your smartphone and to like an air quality app where you're getting below a quarter tank and it's saying, hey, we know you need to fill up soon. Consider filling up, you know, at this time or on this commute because then you could actually give them opportunities to be successful instead of telling them what they shouldn't do. When it comes to data collection, he also doesn't want perfect to be the enemy of good. It's not going to be perfect, and we understand that. We will do stakeholdering. But without us actually putting something out into the wild, we're not going to know exactly how it's going to work. We grew up with a real sense of the dual nature of American industry tremendous productive capacity and even beauty in the industrial facilities and work like the steel mills and things like that. There's a certain beauty in that and there's a certain pride in the productive capability, but also a destructive potential when the work is not done right, when proper procedures and processes aren't followed, and when polluters are allowed to externalize their costs to the community by using the communities as free dumping zones. This is local physician Velma Campbell. She is a family doctor and also has a master's in public health and the environment. When she was in the first grade, she was living in West Virginia, where her father was a union activist and both of her parents instilled in her a concern for the impacts of industries. We would go to Pittsburgh from West Virginia to see the steel mills. And on the way there and back, it would be, look at those slag piles and look at those coal mines, look at that coal waste, look what it's doing to the rivers, look what it's doing to the air. And that dual nature and the fact that it didn't have to be that way, I think that's probably the biggest message that I got from my parents was that the job could be done right and it didn't have to be that destructive. Velma sees parallels with Pueblo, which is now her home. She says there is a disconnect between health statistics and the availability of air quality data. But she sees progress being made, whether that's through new data collection. We have something to gain, which is more health data. Or outreach. With the environmental justice programs of the state, as well as the EPA environmental justice programs under the new administration, rather than going into the community and doing sort of helicopter research, dropping in and telling the community what the community needs, 
they're actually implementing requirements to interact with the community, requirements to put the community first. Velma sees this as a change in the way the government interacts with the communities it's meant to serve. She points to the Environmental Justice Action Task Force meetings, for which her colleague and friend Jamie was one of five community representatives. But she and others would also join and provide comments. She says that by showing up and engaging, they were able to advocate for more stringent recommendations. But it was very interesting watching the industry types and the regulators who had never had to sit with community members as equals at the table and actually hear the perspective of the people whose communities the industries were asking to use as free dumping grounds. And so that's, that's the kind of perspective that we need to, to see more of if we're going to make a real change. Velma and others see this collaboration with the Air Quality Control Division as just the beginning. We've seen a real difference in the past two or three years. People from the Air Pollution Control Division started reaching out to us and saying, well, we've got this hearing coming up, or we want to put on a public listening session about certain regulations or things like that. Can you help us get the community out? Can you help us do this and that? And that was new. In the past, they hadn't really made a big effort to get community input. Now, the regulations still have big flaws, and the permitting process for these polluting industries have really big limitations. But without that outreach and that communication, it wouldn't be possible for us to have any input into the process at all. And I think then when we go and we have to speak a little strongly to them, then we're speaking to people who know us and who are not always going to get their feelings hurt about it. Michael also sees a new path forward. It's difficult to build trust with communities, but I've tried to do that in my career as a public servant and trying to also change the way community interacts with government so that we can collectively work towards improvements with our given authority, but also with them at the table and being able to directly influence how we pass policy. Back in the Denver metro area, community members in the city of Aurora, just east of Denver, are also mobilizing to monitor the air and advocate for stronger air quality regulations. One group, the Black Parents United Foundation, recently received a grant from EPA to build out a network. We decided to apply for this grant because we felt like we know that fracking is happening in Aurora too. We know that the 80010 area code people are dying 10 years earlier than other people in Aurora. But why? So we started to correlate a lot of that. We already agreed that we were going to empower the community in Aurora. And what is the best way of doing that is bringing the data, teaching our community this is what's happening. So not just telling you what environmental justice is, but seeing it in real life with, with science behind it, with the data behind it. This is Cherie Walker-Ravenel, the executive director of the Black Parents United Foundation. 
also known as BPUF. We're going to be doing some air monitoring in Aurora in the disproportionately impacted communities. So we're going to be moving the monitors around to capture data on seeing what is impacting our communities in those specific areas. We're also not going to forget about the areas that near the fracking well too. When you look at the fracking wells in Aurora, surprisingly, they're not those disproportionately impacted communities. But the people over there are mad over there by the Aurora Reservoir. So we want to make sure that we capture that too. Cherie is a mom and a teacher. She grew up in the Mississippi Delta and moved to Colorado when her 12-year-old daughter Lauren was a baby. A few years later, Lauren started to struggle with her breathing. Lauren had an asthma attack when she was three. And I didn't know that it was an asthma attack. I was at work. I picked her up from school. She was at my office. I was a, at that time, I wasn't a teacher, but she was breathing weird, but I couldn't catch it because I, no one in my family has asthma until we got home and she just fell on the floor. And I called 911, like, something's wrong with my daughter. She's not breathing. She was like gasping for air. And they was like, take her to the ER. And I took her to the, was it Children's Hospital? And they like rushed her to the back. And then they hooked her up to all these tubes. And then we, they got her breathing under control. And I think she had to stay overnight or something. And then they diagnosed her with respiratory airway disease. And they said, we can't diagnose her with asthma because she's too young. I remember seeing her on the floor. And I can't turn that vision off my head because she would have died. It wasn't until later that Cherie started learning about how environmental factors can also affect people with lung conditions. And it all started with a local Facebook parents group. One of the members of the Facebook group, we went to church together. She was like, have you heard of environmental racism? And I said, no, never even heard of that. And at that time, I was a teacher. I was a high school English teacher at that time. Hadn't, hadn't heard that word before. And she said... Environmental justice is one of the areas that I work in, and I realized that there's not a lot of Black people in this movement. She said that this issue is very serious um, for communities of color, and she's a Hispanic woman. She started to mention some of the correlations with health issues to the environment. So it became very dear to me because this was my baby that we're talking about, and that's how the word environmental justice started to come about. From there, the nonprofit Black Parents United Foundation organically formed. And, you know, I asked her, I said, you should join my board, join the board. And she was like, I'm not black. And then I was like, this doesn't mean you have to be black. No, I want you to be a part of this world. You're telling me things that I think a lot of people need to hear. The woman Sharia is talking about is Lucy Molina, the community leader from Commerce City that we heard from in episode three. The, the invisible enemy is this air, right? It's an invisible enemy. You can't touch it. You cannot grab it and strangle it. <laughs> you cannot control this. This air is going to go everywhere. And that woman changed my life. BPUF has worked to spread the word about environmental justice. Along with pursuing government grants, like the one from EPA, BPUF equips community members to advocate for themselves. We started to focus on doing policy trainings. So then not only as our aunties or grandmas or kids, everybody now understand what environmental justice is, we started to train them on what policy is 
Because it's intimidating when you tell somebody that. You tell somebody you're going to write a policy. What are you? I'm not going to ever show up. So we hired another girl, another black girl from Montbello. She came in and she's a firecracker. She trained all the community members on how to write a policy. She made it interactive like a teacher. We were playing games on this is what social determinants is. This is what health equity is. This is what this looks like. So she made it very interactive for a community too. And then when we started to draft the policy at the very end, you would not believe at how many people cried and cheered that we actually wrote a policy. The goal of writing a community-led policy is for it to have a community voice. And I think when we finished the trainings, there was about 462 people that had attended all the trainings over the past year, and they all had their hands on that policy. The policy focuses around air toxins and asthma and other health disparity issues that are happening in our community. One of the main things that we talked about was having real-time data real-time alerts. I advocated for that. If you know that the air quality is going to be 100% bad, we need to have those alerts right away in multiple languages. The community also don't have time to go onto the state website to go and find buried information. Sometimes when you go in there and you're looking for information around environmental justice or like air toxins, you have to have maybe have 50 to 100 clicks to get there. So we're trying to make things a lot more accessible for community members. That empowerment can make a big difference as community members show up to provide comments at public meetings, rally for new policies, and take action to monitor their own air. One of the things that we also want to focus on, and we were talking to the city of Aurora about this, is we need to know who's responsible for polluting the air. And with air monitoring, you can find out who, what's the root cause of a lot of this. And it's awesome to see that because then you're not pointing fingers. It's, it's science that shows that this, this pollution is coming from this area and it's coming from this location. I talked to one guy. He lives by the Aurora Reservoir. And you know they're fracking over there. He told me before he moved here, maybe three or four years ago, he saw those houses go up because they're building a lot out there. He said a lot of people left large money on the table and refused to live over there because they're fracking over there. And those houses are almost million dollars, million dollar houses. But for the fact that you don't want to live over there really is showing that even those communities over there are starting to understand what fracking can do to their community. It's not just poor people that are impacted by it. This is an issue that is happening to rich or poor. Cherie does this work because it affects her community at large today, but also because it has roots in long-standing inequities in our society that go beyond the air. Let me be clear. We can't separate environmental justice from education inequality, education disparities, and health equity and health disparities. What we found out is that a lot of the environmental issues that we fight come from the social determinants of health, the health inequities that our communities face. The social determinants of health are about how the conditions in the environments where people are born, live, learn, work, and play can affect a person's health and outcomes in life. Do you have access to stable housing? What about education? Nutritious food? Clean air and water? The idea is that your health outcomes might have less to do with medical interventions. Instead, 
It's more about the confluence of factors that can influence your ability to live a healthy life. The systems in which we all live. This community air monitoring project is groundbreaking because you got local community members that are really fighting for the community and doing jobs that other people should do. But we're also wanting to hold folks accountable. We realize that in order to combat this, we need to take this to the top because it's not our fault and it's not anyone's fault. And a lot of times as community members, we feel powerless. And it's not just having a seat at the table. It's about having the power to When working on this series and talking to people both on and off the mic, I would sometimes get overwhelmed by the complexity of the issue. The number of organizations involved, the policy and legal frameworks, the science of how our air works, the history, all the levers of change, and a feeling that this is an insurmountable problem because it's really about whole systems that have shaped our modern world. But over time, I started to feel inspired and hopeful by all those we had the privilege of speaking with. Because what I think I see happening is a shift in our collective thinking. And policy shifts when our thinking shifts. Often, there is a cultural catalyst that sparks change. And that catalyst can come from people being empowered with data knowledge, and opportunity. Up next, we'll have our final episode and look towards the future, the small and big steps that people are taking to better our air. Laws of Notion is a production of the Institute for Science and Policy at the Denver Museum of Nature and Science. To learn more about this season, visit clearingtheair.org. I'm your host, Kristen Uhlenbrock. This episode was written by me and Meredith Sell, produced by Trisha Waddell, with support from Nicole Delaney and fact-checking by Kate Long. Sound design by Seth Samuel with tracks from Epidemic Sounds and audio support by Jesse Boynton. For a full list of credits, check out the show notes. If you have learned something new, please rate, review, and share the podcast. Thank you for listening. See you next time.